Welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. I'm Jim Hemphill, Features Writer for Craft and Special Projects at IndieWire. Today I'm talking with writer-director Ari Aster, who with only three feature films, Hereditary, Midsommar, and his latest, Bo is Afraid, has established himself as one of the preeminent American horror auteurs. Bo is Afraid is his most ambitious movie to date, both conceptually and in terms of its scale, and it's broader in terms of its approach to genre. While it is undeniably a horror film at many moments, it's also a hilarious black comedy and a dreamlike fantasy film with echoes of everyone from Jacques Tati and Alfred Hitchcock to Albert Brooks and After Hours era Martin Scorsese. I spoke with Ari the day the film opened in limited release. By the time you hear this, it should be playing why. So, Bo is Afraid is obviously a far more ambitious movie than your previous two, just in terms of scale and the kinds of resources you needed. And I'm curious, do you think about the practical implications of what you're writing as you're doing it? Is there a concern with how you're going to physically execute this stuff? Or do you just let it all come out and worry about that later? Uh, I try not to get caught up in those questions uh, of how, you know, we're going to execute things until, you know, I'm done writing. Uh, you know, sometimes images come to me or shots while I'm writing, but uh, I, I, I tend to not inhibit myself in terms of, you know, scale or what, 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 you know, what seems easily achievable or, you know, I, 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 those problems kind of come up later. So, once you were done with the script and you did realize again that it was kind of at this level of higher ambition in a way uh what was the reaction from a24 the initial reaction when you gave them the script i mean if anything the reaction was um just really heartening i usually send my scripts to to noah sacco first i'm very close with him and and um and he he just he he really loved it and one thing i really appreciate about them is that they they tend to you know not dive into those questions right away either like the question first is how do we feel about this are we behind it are we excited by it and then um and then we inevitably get to those discussions but um but i i was surprised that uh right off the bat they were enthusiastic about it the length became a concern as we went forward but I think everybody kind of understood what the thing was as well, that it was, you know, designed to function as an epic. And so that was just kind of part of its DNA. And so when you complete the script, you know, what are the first steps towards getting off the ground? Who are your, who are your initial conversations with? Is it, are you talking to your DP? Are you, is it more about thinking about casting first? What's the kind of, um, what are the initial steps just towards making this a movie a reality? The first question usually is about casting because that that's also just a big part of getting the money uh, is just making sure that you have an actor of, I hate to use the word value, but that that's the word that gets thrown around a lot when you're looking for somebody to take on, you know, the lead role. So getting Joaquin was the first step. Uh, I believe we, no, yeah, we did. Uh, we secured Joaquin before we, took the script to A24. And yeah, then from there, you know, as you move towards pre-production, then the question becomes, okay, how do you, uh, I mean, where are we going to shoot this thing? You start by looking at places with, you know, tax incentives and, and, and you, you, you really just try to find as many methods as possible of stretching the budget and making sure that 
you can get the most out of it. In terms of the casting of Joaquin, you know, I've read that it was sort of a months long courtship between the two of you, you know, with you talking to him about doing the movie. What were the what kinds of things was he what made him resistant initially and what made you determined to get him? I mean, I know obviously he's fantastic in the movie, but I mean, I'm always fascinated by this thing where directors, you know, are willing to just spend months and months and months um, pursuing an actor who's resistant. Um, what were the what was what were those conversations like over that period? I wouldn't even call him resistant. I think he was just I think he just uh, doesn't jump onto any project lightly because he knows that he's going to commit all of himself. Really, he just, you know, he takes a long time to decide whether he's really going to throw his, you know, his body and his spirit into this movie. You know, from the beginning, I mean, he he was at least very intrigued by it, um, I believe. Uh, that was the sense that I got. You know, I mean, most of the time we spent talking it was really just getting to know each other and seeing if we meshed and and we we got along in those conversations and 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 i i think we both liked each other but but uh it was really uh when shooting began that i think we both became very aware of the fact that we kind of worked in very similar ways and and had had a lot in common joaquin was always the first choice he's somebody i've wanted to work with for a long long time i uh, i mean I remember seeing To Die For when I was really young and being re really fascinated by what what he was doing there. So many of his performances have like just kind of shocked me. Like what he does in The Master is incredible. Uh, what he was doing with James Gray for so long, especially in Two Lovers. A film that made a huge impression on me when I saw it in theaters was um, uh, um, I'm Still Here which for me is not only just a great performance, a great comic performance, it's, it's so funny, but what he was doing with his own name struck me as like both, you know, like suicidal and, and kind of heroic. It just, just really felt like the gesture of like a real artist and this like weird conflagration, you know, like, like he was like, he was like taking his identity and destroying it and and it does feel like a, a a line he drew in the sand and then uh and then there's like his career before that and, and his career after and i'd never seen anybody do anything like that so he that that i've 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 really wanted to work with him since then like in a an obsessive way where it's just like i i i really really hope that i i will have the opportunity to to do something with this guy. Well, in a weird way, there's actually, for me, a parallel between I'm Still Here and uh, Bo is Afraid. I mean, they're both these com ostensible comedies that just infuse you with anxiety from beginning to end. Um, and, you know, another movie that Bo is Afraid reminded me of in that way was After Hours. There aren't too many movies I can think of that have the kind of tone that you hit where, again, it's, it's sort of superficially comedy, but also just extremely dread and anxiety-inducing from beginning to end. And I'm curious for you... What were, if you had any, what were some of the cinematic influences or reference points for you for this movie? I mean, was After Hours something you were thinking about or were there other ones? I would say that a lot of the the influences were sort of unconscious when I was writing it and that I became kind of aware of them as we were either shooting or, or even in, in post. Like, you know, After Hours certainly occurred to me when we were shooting it. That's a film that I just, I love. When we shot the final, well, when I was when I was designing the final sequence um which is something of a well it's like a it's this like this 
this hellish um, tribunal, I was thinking about Powell and Pressburger's A Matter of Life and Death. That's what was on my mind. But then when we were in post, it occurred to me that the scene was kind of nodding without my awareness to Defending Your Life, which is a film that I just, which is a film that's very important to me and I, I love it so much. There's a lot of films that I love that I've sort of metabolized in one way or another. You know, I, I mean, even the scene and the, uh, I mean, speaking of Palin Pressburger, the the play sequence in the film, which happens about, about midway through, a, a little bit past that, that kind of reminds me of even just the way it functions narratively. It reminds me of the... Uh, the ballet sequence in in the red shoes, which again I I, 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 I wasn't totally conscious of until uh, it came time to start designing it, and I realized like that that could be a source of inspiration. And then there are a lot of other things we drew from, like Kabuki and the films of of Carol Zeman, especially uh, especially Invention for Destruction. Um, when it came time to think about you know what the style of animation would be. In, and just how much uh, stagecraft we'd be using as opposed to, you know, the animated elements that would be um, interacting with all of that. But really, there were more overt literary influences on this movie than there were, you know, movies that were on my mind while I was writing it. Yeah, no, it's it's very novelistic in a really cool way. And I love how the movie's told in these you know, different sections that have wildly different settings and experiences for Bo, even though some of the underlying issues and tone remain. And I'm curious what the approach was that you and your cinematographer took to those sections in terms of deciding how to differentiate between them and where to remain consistent. That was definitely a challenge, determining how we might, you know, jump from not only world to world, but almost tone to tone and uh, retain as much cohesion as possible. I mean, really, a film like this, it's... It's it's like more feeling based than anything else. You're you're kind of just relying on your your intuition. You know, from very early on, talking to Fiona Crombie, the uh, the production designer, the question of like you know what the color palette was was a a big thing, um, and finding these colors that would remain consistent through the film. Each given section would kind of lean more heavily towards these colors, and then, but by the end, you'd kind of you'd still be playing with the same palette throughout. Yeah, I mean, the way that I work with Pavel Pogorzelski, the DP, because uh, we've been together for a long, long time. We, you know, we st we, we we started working together at the American Film Institute. Um, so we went to school together, and at this point, we have a real shorthand. He has a really great relationship with Panavision and they've been very generous about kind of allowing us to design um, our own lenses, you know, where they give us different uh, prime lens packages and Pav will do a lot of tests with all of them and then we'll determine like the features of each lens that uh, that work and that don't. And so, you know, uh, especially on, on Hereditary and Midsommar, we'd look at, at one one package and say, okay, well, we, you know, we love the blacks here, but the, but the lens flare does not work. Um, although we love the flare on this lens. Um, and then I like the softness of this one. These, these lenses are too sharp. And so then we'd kind of talk to them about, you know, 
creating lenses that feature all the, have all the things that we loved about the others and get rid of the things that we perceived as just not being right. That's been a really fun part of the process. And then, I, you know, I, I tend to shot list the films on my own. So I will block the film and design the shots before production, walk through all of that with Pavel. He'll have his ideas and it'll inevitably kind of grow and, and develop uh, as, as he and I talk through everything. But the difference between Bo is Afraid and the earlier films is that I, even though I, I was still blocking and shot listing the film in advance and storyboarding a lot of the sequences, I think we storyboarded something like five set pieces just so that uh, the, the crew, you know, wouldn't have to rely on, on the shot list, which is really written for me to understand more than anybody else. But it can be, you know, uh, I think it can lock people out in a way that's not useful. I came into this film knowing that I wanted to have the plan and I wanted to have the shot list ready, but that I was going to need to have it just in my back pocket and be open to basically not prescribe the blocking in the same way. And that was a decision I made like, you know, right when I offered the part to Joaquin, because I knew that he's not somebody that you like give blocking to, but, but, but somebody that you work the scene out with. Um, and that ended up being such a joyful part of the process, just going into each scene, open to whatever Joaquin was going to bring and, 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 and all the actors. And, uh, you know, it turned out that a lot of the planning I had done was still totally appropriate um, and, and didn't have to change at all. But I also found that I was just more able to pivot on a dime on this one and, and throw the plan away. And, um, I didn't really have the confidence to do that on the first two films. I really kind of wanted to stick to the plan. And honestly, you know, it, I, my, my favorite scenes in the film tend to be the ones where I did have to throw the plan away and I had to kind of redesign things on the spot. I want to work in that way again. That's, that's something I want to do on the next one. Do you remember any specific examples of scenes where you kind of threw out your plan and came up with something better? You know, there was a scene where he was supposed to be on the phone and I, I imagined him standing, but then he ended up sitting down for the call and then kind of kept curling forward as that was happening. And then that immediately, like, you know, uh, ignited something in my mind and, and, and the shot became very different and the scene became very different, but, but the, the, the philosophy was the same because I always wanted to shoot that in, in, in one take. And so uh, I think it went from honestly something much simpler. I think it was just a close-up, like a static, a static close-up that would have just held for about three minutes to uh, a shot that kind of crept in towards him and, and ended up, you know, uh, uh, as we were tracking forward, we were booming down and tilting up uh, until we were just, you know, in a close-up underneath him, uh, looking directly up. Uh, at him as he looks down past us. It's funny. It's really, as I look back over the film, it's, it's, it's actually interesting how, it's, in, it's interesting how little I did have to throw away without ever actually giving Joaquin the blocking. <laughs> you mentioned your production designer. And I'm curious, you know, I love the whole first movement of this movie, Bo in his apartment building in that terrifying neighborhood. 
and I'm assuming the interior of the apartment is set. And I'm curious, uh, how do you and the production designer create that space in a way that it's going to help you generate both the anxiety and the humor that you're looking for? I'm not sure if it's as self-conscious as like what, what space will give us, you know, uh, this effect. That scene especially is so gag driven that we kind of knew what we needed from the space just in order to, to sort of achieve everything. And, and because we were building everything, you know, it's like, okay, well, this wall needs to be wild so that we can put the camera here. You know, we need this amount of space here so that he could, you know, move freely in this section. We built all the interiors of his apartment building on a stage. So his apartment, the corridors on his floor, uh, the elevator, the lobby downstairs, all of that was built from scratch on a stage. And, uh, and that's how we started the film. That was the first place we shot. Then we shot at Grayson Rogers, which was on location. Then we shot for a week on the street, Bo's neighborhood block. It was actually two blocks that we, you know, effectively owned and kind of redesigned. Um, so there were existing structures that we kind of built on top of to create that world shot there for a week. Then we went into the forest where we had built that theater stage in the woods. And then we shot uh, the cruise scenes. Uh, that was virtual production. So all those spaces actually needed to be built virtually. So that was basically CG. And then, except for the, uh, the room that he was staying in, on the cruise that, that, that was shot at a hotel. Then we shot, uh, the mother's house on location and we did some work to, uh, to redesign that space, but mostly it was just, um, decoration. And that was an amazing house. I, I, I couldn't believe it when we found it. That was a very, very, very look like that was a very, very, very hard location to find. We shot the final sequence on a water tank and he was surrounded and he was surrounded completely you know, by green screen. So all of that, that entire environment was built in CGI. The last week of shooting was on the stage again with all of the uh, stagecraft uh, for the, the animated play sequence. And so we had to build most of those environments on, uh, on a stage. How did you find, you know, working with the CG stuff? I'm always impressed by movies like yours where the CG is, you know, feels... I don't know, for lack of a better word, handmade. It, you know, because a lot of movies, I feel like I see bigger films, and this, they feel like they're all using like the same templates or software or something. Like there's a certain same similarity to a lot of the CG, and I feel like in your movies, it feels more handmade and personal. But how do you convey when you're dealing with what I'm assuming are probably dozens or hundreds of digital artists? How do you kind of maintain control over that and communicate to people? what you want when it's something so different from what everyone else is doing. Well, it's very tricky, especially when you're creating an entire environment from scratch. And I hadn't really done that before until the cruise scenes and that that final uh, trial sequence. It's hard because you, I mean, there's obviously nothing in camera to ground you except for in, in those cases, the actors that are kind of interacting with that environment. And so it's just, it's just, there's more trial and error than there would be with anything else. It takes a long, long time. And so really the question is, do you have the time? Do you have the money? And uh, which, you know, our 
kind of the same thing. I would say that that trial sequence took longer to complete than anything I'd ever made before. That that was about that was over a year of uh, of work in in post. And you know, and and every week we're getting new shots, we're getting new models. It's really just a matter of just fine tuning. But the problem is that there is the, there is a clock hanging over you, and uh, you'll you'll only be able to get it, you know, so far. So the so it's really just about pushing and pushing and pushing. And kind of, you know, it, it just feels like chiseling, you know, just like every time you get a new shot, you're going to have something like 20 notes and those are going to be taken and some will be, some, some of those notes will be like misinterpreted or you'll just find that your own note was just not right, that, that, you, that they, you're pushing it in the wrong direction. And it's, it's, it's a very, very hard thing to talk about because it's so hard to track that progress. You know, there are a lot of shots in that final sequence that, there were, you know, about 200 versions of. And so, you know, it's, it's very, it's very tricky. But before this, the most complicated thing I had done in CG what, uh, was the, uh, the tripping sequences in, in Midsommar. And, and those, those took a long time to get right. Do you, do you enjoy the process of dealing with visual effects or is it uh, more of a chore? Once you finally start getting it into the right zone, then it becomes very pleasurable. But getting there is very, you know, it's just, it's just work. It's all work. In, in many ways, you know, that feels just as, uh, it feels just as satisfying as, as it does to, you know, kind of build something on the ground. But I would say it's more frustrating in that it's less like, it's a less tactile process. Um, and in, in some ways, just harder to harder to refine in the right ways because in the end it's not just about achieving like an effect but it's about replicating like the texture of something real and it's very hard to like just get there it, and it's very hard to find it but then and 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 honestly the process is so arduous that there's a part of you that's never quite sure if it's if you're there you know by the time you get to something that that that, that that's working i feel like my defenses are up to to the point where i i i have a hard time saying okay this is okay we're there we're finished with this shot well that kind of leads me to my final question for you i wanted to wrap up by asking a little bit about the editing because i'm curious how you retain your objectivity in editing a movie like this which a has an unconventional structure b is three hours long so how do you fine-tune the pace and know that you've got it right well, especially with a film this long, the necessity to get it down, right? To to make sure that you're you're cutting it down as far as you can, I think puts you on the lookout for anything that's even the least bit extraneous um, or superfluous. And that's also a hard thing to determine with a film like this that is so driven and dictated by a sort of like dream logic. But there were just a lot of things where, you know, it was very clear that okay, if we take this out, then like the Jenga tower of this section kind of just collapses. So it was just a matter of kind of, you know, trying to, trying to cut a little bit too much and then see where, you know, where, where, where the film suffers. Also just be very stubborn about what to protect and what to not even consider losing. And uh, I don't know, it's, it's a very hard thing to talk about except to say that so much of editing I think is also about watching the film through and kind of just trying to feel in your own system when it's just not as exciting as as it 
as it should be, not 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 as compelling as it should be. I mean, sometimes it's not it's not even a question of like pacing or storytelling, but like where is the filmmaking maybe like faltering or you know, where where is this like just weaker than the rest? And just trying to get to a place where the film just feels good all the way through. Uh, I mean, to you, you know, to the people making it. So, you know, it's it's such an ineffable thing that it's hard it's hard to talk about, but pacing is kind of everything. It feels like pacing and tone are are, are like the more I make films, the more I feel like that th those are the most important things. I, I agree. And you got both of them really right in this movie. I mean, I was uh you know, mesmerized from beginning to end, even though it was three hours, I never felt like it was long or the wrong, you know, the wrong length or anything like that. I mean, it really kept me riveted and entertained uh, throughout. So I, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me about it. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks so much. 